It's a pleasure to be with you again, and uh, I've sure enjoyed uh, being with the, I don't know what we call you, the discipleship men here in Claremont. Uh, we were up late till 11 o'clock. I learned uh, three things about these gentlemen. They love to eat, they love to study, and they love to bowl. So I didn't know that was a, th a new thing. I, I try not to tell them, but I used to bowl in Japan, and we, and we really loved it, actually, but. Uh, I'd like to um, begin this morning in prayer, and then I'd like to introduce a topic that um, would be very important for you. In fact, I would suggest to you that if this topic is not taken seriously, you're doomed to fail. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus. There is no other name that we can possibly desire except the name of our Savior. And we do that because, oh, Father, it is by his person, by his work, that we can call you Father and come into your presence and ask you things like a child would their father. And we want to take advantage of that this morning in Jesus' name. As I mentioned to you just a second ago, the topic of this hour is, um, and tonight will be so important that failure to grasp this concept, I, I, I'm not being dramatic at all, will, real, will be realized in your own failure. The topic that I'm going to speak about is so important to God, he'll, he gives you a visible illustration of just how valuable this topic is to him. It is a topic in which the early apostles would have dedicated themselves to. It is a topic in which the Savior himself would make concerted, persistent efforts to accomplish. Indeed, it is a topic in which in the Old Testament prophets you will find is a, a, a large part of their heritage, if not uh, a, a part of their heritage which brought rain and didn't bring rain. I want to introduce this topic to you in the book of Revelation. There's only one verse there that we're going to read. You will want to turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, and we'll look at verse 8. Now, while I'm looking here, I'm trying to find my little bitty glasses, which I can't seem to find. Well, that's a bummer. All right, we'll move on. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Now, I'll read it slowly. The context, as you know, is the, uh, is the uh, looking for the one who can open the seals. But I, just, just look at this little detail. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? That last phrase, golden bowls of incense which are the prayers of the saints. What's actually the prayers? The incense, is it not? Would you agree? 
Yeah, I think so. I think when we look back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we find that incense has a lot to deal with intercession. And we see it more clearly in the Old Testament when we have a picture of, of the incense of equal parts of uh, uh, ingredients put into the same mixture, homogeneous as if to say the Savior who makes intercession for us is perfect in all his ways. And of course, it's ignited, that is, it's evaporated by a coal, a, a hot burning element put under the censer so that it would heat up the base and evaporate the powdery substance and give off that aroma in the tabernacle and temple. But those are important things to God. He has a particular protocol in the Old Testament about this incense. In fact, no one else was allowed to handle it except the priests, and he gave certain instructions to the priests that if that was violated, they were to guard this, asp this function of the priesthood. And Uzziah was one who tried to violate it, and 80 priests showed up to stand in his way. These, this incense is pretty important to God. But notice in Revelation, it says that these prayers, this incense, are actually contained in golden bowls. Let me tell you something. If I had a golden bowl, no one's touching it. Right? Have you ever purchased something of significant value? Ladies, have you ever got that diamond ring? Hmm? Pretty nice, huh? Do you ever just set that on a piece of gum in the house and let it go? It won't fall, it won't get, you know, displaced, it's stuck. No, you usually find something kind of special. What do we call that? A jewelry box. And, and if you're, you're, you're guarding that, you don't let anybody go into the jewelry box. There's, there's rocks there that mean something to you. They're precious to you, aren't they? And in the same way, God comes to this passage in Revelation, and in a very subtle way, he says this, Did you know that the prayers of my saints are so important to me that I will hold them in a golden bowl. The price of that bowl alone is ex extraordinary. And God is saying the, the value of the prayers of my children are even greater than that, and I'm going to house them here in a special place. Prayer. It is the one thing the church can never be without. Prayer, it is the model of the Savior. And multiple places, please don't turn to these, the Lord Jesus is found praying. He is found praying after he uh, uh, took care of the multitudes and healed them. He sent them away. Jesus went off to pray. The disciples knew it. This job did not know where he went. He was praying before his identity was revealed in Luke chapter 9. He was praying. He prayed all night and then told the disciples about who he was. He prayed all night before he selected the apostles. He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying long before that as he prayed for Peter. And he was praying in the upper room. And he was praying everywhere you turn. He was a praying individual. How is it that those of us who are called Christians, Christ-like ones, don't seem to value what it means to pray. 
when our Christ only valued prayer. That's hard, isn't it? What God did to us in our lives is he showed us the incredible value of prayer. He highlighted it with, a high, with, the, with the bright green marker of today, and we never forgot that lesson. There is a little story for you in Judges. Uh, maybe you should turn there. Judges, I think it's chapter 2. Now, I have to tell you while you're turning to Judges, this, week, this weekend in our, in our discipleship class, we were doing homiletics. So I'm very nervous because I went through things with the, with the brothers about, you know, order and form and flow of thought and, and style and all this stuff. And I'm worried they're going to all send me text messages during the message. Hey, you got your hand in your pocket, you know, something like that. Justin, calm down. So I'm, I'm very nervous, but nonetheless, we'll, we'll press on. So Judges chapter 2 and I would like you to look just for a moment at verse 10. Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. Very unusual place to talk about prayer, isn't it? Book of Judges, yeah. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. You see, there was... The death of Joshua, there was the death of the contemporaries of Joshua, and the next generation, the younger generation, did not have the same knowledge base of the identity of Jehovah as Joshua and his generation. Not only that, they were also deficient in his activity, how God did things, his, his strength, his way of doing things, his strategy, right? And so there was this disconnect of knowing the Lord and his doings equals the book of Judges. Now turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is an interesting insight here. You will want to look at verse 12. John chapter 14 and verse 12. I realize it's a little exercise and flipping through the pages this morning, but it won't last long. This is the introduction, of course. Now, in John chapter 14, verse 12, I want you to see this. This is the Lord Jesus talking, and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me. All right, just take that phrase, believes in me. What does that mean? That means that you know the Lord that's a similar phrase in Judges chapter 2 where it says, And a generation arose who did not know the Lord. Believing in me is an equivalent concept that you actually know the identity of the person to whom you pray. Now notice the next thing. The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these. Now remember that phrase in Judges, I said they did not know the Lord, nor the works of the Lord. Here we come to John 14, verse 10, where you, or verse, 11, or verse 12, and you will actually know the Lord, he who believes in me, and the works of the Lord that he's done will be done in you in a greater capacity or in a greater quality or however else we can define it. My point is simple. How do you reverse the trend of Judges? How do you know the Lord and the works of the Lord? 
How do you prevent a generation that writes a terrible epitaph to the people of God and judges? How does that happen? It happens by prayer. That's how it's reversed. You see, when we pray and we ask God to move with a heart that's right before him, that's wholly committed to the will of God, where God is free to work and move amongst his people and the voices of his children, when we pray to an invisible God and we watch an invisible God do visible things, it changes changes us. And it changes us in such a way that we never forget it. Let me me finish this introduction by one of our stories. You see, I would read these books on prayer and and we have these stories like George Mueller, the man of prayer, and, you know, and the famous one with the cart and the horse that they sat down to pray for dinner and there was no dinner and all the orphans are looking around and, and the, the milk truck breaks down in front of their house, the knock at the door asking if they needed any dairy products because it would waste if he, if he tried to get it fixed and so they had dinner that night. Yeah, that's a great story. And no offense to Mr. Mueller, but I want my own stories. Don't you? I want to know the Lord and the works of the Lord. And this is what God did in our lives. And we're just a little scratch on the planet in Kansas. Our assembly, as you know, as you have heard in the past, was really in, on death's doorstep. We were on life support. And we got together, two men. I was one of them. And we prayed every week for five years that God would change us and bring us back to life. And he did. He did. I can't, we just recognized three elders last December. There's five of us now. That was really a miracle. There's somewhere around 182 of us. When we began to pray all those years ago, that was almost 30 years ago, we were down to 32. We were going to die. People were leaving like a bad disease, and God fixed us. Oh, that's not all. The Lord took us from that. We had elders re-recognized some 20 years later, and back in 2000, early 2000s, and we began to do evangelism. And we were, we, 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 um, it's really a, a great story. We, we, were, we were not, we didn't have a lot of people. We didn't have a lot of resources. And we thought, let's do something. Something is better than nothing. We asked the Lord what to do, and we did a VBS. Now, you got to understand, vacation Bible school for you is like every night of the week from like 7 to 10 p.m., and the kids are going bonkers, and you're all tired, right? We didn't have the manpower for that. So we did it Thursday evening, Friday evening, and half a Saturday. That's what we call half a vacation Bible school. And what we did is we decided we should go out and advertise it somehow. So this was, this was all of our outreach. We had door hangers made that told about our, what we were doing, our place, and our time. That was our outreach. No gospel, no nothing, just information. And we went to five apartment complexes, and we prayed weeks before God would open doors for us. So my friend Rodney and I, we go to this apartment complex, and we'd been praying the Lord would answer our prayer. And we go in, and we knock on the door of the manager, and she says, I'm sorry, I, I can't let you pass that out here because uh, we're a private property. And we go, oh, oh, well, ma'am, we understand. Is it all right if we just leave you a little bit of who we are so you'll know we're not some kind of weirdo group? We, we're just around the corner. You can always find us. 
Well, I'd be a very, thank you, very nice. That's very nice. Put that right here on my desk. It's okay. And Rodney, are, uh, Rodney and I are about to leave the door, uh, the room, and she goes, now wait a minute. I couldn't turn around. I go, yes, ma'am. Did you know I am the apartment manager? Yes, ma'am, you are. I can see, I, I'm living the moment again. Did, did you know what tomorrow is, sir? I said, no, ma'am. It's the first of the month. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, do you know what happens on the first of the month in these apartments? I said, no, ma'am. Then she got a big grin. Everybody pays rent. I go, oh. That means, Mr. Price, everybody's got to come by my desk tomorrow. Why don't you leave your little stack here? I'll, I'll distribute those for you. Rodney and I, we had been out in our hot 110-day heat. Ten minutes, we went back to the chapel sipping lemonade. The rest of the teams were out for three hours. It was hilarious. Wednesday night came. One of our young men, he got up and he said, oh, God, please send us children to our VBS. We were doing VBS like that to launch us in the fall to the kids club, so it was kind of strategic. Oh, please send us children. Oh, God, we ask you to send us children. And my phone rings. And I open, I answer, and it's a number I don't recognize. And so I go, hello? It goes like this. Yes, um, I'm the apartment manager at such and such a place, and uh, you came by and I passed out your door hangers for you? I I'm like this. Yes. And um, we have uh, 15 children that want to come to your VBS, and the parents want to know if you'll pick them up. Would you be able to pick them up? Literally, it was, a, it was like a, a movie. I go, okay. Hilarious. I get off the phone. It was so surreal. I, I walk into the prayer meeting. I said, Saints, you'll never guess what happened. The answer to our prayer showed up by telephone. Back in the New Testament, Peter showed up at the prayer meeting at midnight and got released from jail. What do you think they were doing at midnight? Having dinner? No, I think they were praying. They couldn't believe God would answer the prayer so precisely and so immediately and so in full presence of Peter. Oh, my goodness, saints. When God did that to us, we learned the Lord and the works of the Lord. Do you see how this is? The reason, one of the main reasons why the church is so, how should we say, anemic today is because we don't know the Lord, nor the works of the Lord. And the only way you know the Lord and the works of the Lord is to be a praying people. Does that make sense? That so changed us. I, I tell you with tears, it just, it just moves me. I, mean, I, I got like 10 more of these things, you know. And so changed us that we changed our prayer meeting to be a prayer meeting. Now, I have to tell you, if you can't, Dave, David, if you came to visit, we'd have you speak, of course. But we would say, save us about 20 minutes because we're still going to pray. That's how it would go down. And, and we, we just began to pray. And, and what happened in our assembly is God showed the people that through prayer, prayer you can know the Lord and the works of the Lord and it attracts the saints to pray. And I was telling the men yesterday, we had, we had 60, 70 people at prayer meeting Wednesday night. 
And you know what? Nobody left for an hour after we finished praying. All we do is pray. It's, it's no, there's no show. There's no frills. There's no nothing. We don't even give you a little goldfish. You come, we pray. We cry out to the God. And you know, the Spirit of God he ministers to the soul as you sit. And he, he touches your heart through the prayers of others. And we thought that was fantastic. Then we did the week of prayer and we realized that's exactly what the Spirit of God would do in a collective group. And we realized that as you sat and prayed in the week of prayer, your heart was ministered to by 30 little miniature messages of prayer throughout the whole two or three hours. And God was speaking to us and we knew it and we learned the Lord and we saw the works of the Lord. so foolish with prayer now I think the disciples felt this in some way they saw the Lord Jesus praying all the time they, 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 they felt as if they were perhaps missing something the Lord Jesus had a unique intimacy connection a closeness with the father they saw that John was teaching his own disciples how to pray and I think they yearned for that did you know out of all the things that the disciples could have asked the Lord Jesus to teach them the only thing on record that we have that asked for for the subject was prayer now, he taught them a lot of things don't get me wrong but what they wanted to know was prayer the early church was a praying church. I'm not so sure about the latter church. That's us. And so my exhortation to you this morning and this evening will be towards prayer. Without it, you will fail. With it, you'll know the Lord and the works of the Lord. Now, perhaps our best subject uh, passage to study would be Matthew chapter 6, so please turn there. And for the rest of this um, morning, now to the uh, discipleship class and the homiletics class, I spent too much time on my introduction, but I needed to set the table well, okay? All right, I'm just giving them a heads up. I don't want any nasty grams about way too long, buddy, okay? I'm, of course, teasing. All right. I want you to look at this. Now, the sister passage, which I think was actually given at a different time, is in Luke 11. So if you want to look at parallel passages, Luke 11 gives near the same language as Matthew chapter 6. But um, I want to use Matthew 6 as our text for these, this exercise, uh, and mostly because there's a lot of information about prayer that surrounds this particular instruction. Now, I want you to read it with me. In this manner, this is verse 9 of Matthew 6, sorry, Matthew 6, 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily Bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Now, I'm going to grant you the fact that I will barely get into some of the phrases, but I feel like it's more important to look at each phrase rather than just do a sweeping um, uh, 20,000-foot view. I want you to see some of the intricacies of the Lord Jesus' instruction. Let's begin with the phrase, Our Father. Our Father. Our Pater. If he was speaking in Aramaic, which there was a chance he was, it would have been Abba Father. Remember that phrase, Abba Father? So let's, let's, let's meditate on this for a minute. One of the interesting things when, when the Lord Jesus begins to teach them to pray is he first uses a title that's a family title. And if he was speaking in Aramaic, it would have been a close, intimate, like a child-father, a, a relationship of a small child to a father kind of title. In other words, there is an identity that you have uh, that you know in heaven that you can call upon. There is a person. There's an individual. And he's, he, he doesn't use Jehovah title. He doesn't use Jehovah Jireh. He doesn't use Adonai. He does not use Elohim. He uses Father. And that's very important to us. The only way we really, really recognize its importance is when the Father is missing. So back in that work with the children that came from the apartment complexes, we had some during all that time that came, and they were all from broken homes. They were drug-infested neighborhoods. We used to take our big brown van, drive down right through the middle. We, the Lord protected us, gave us such a reputation in the neighborhood, they called us the church van. And they would tell their neighbors, don't mess with the church van, Right? Because if God doesn't smack you, I will. That's kind of how it was, you know. And so uh, we, we were always safe. And, and uh, I would, would take my small children in there and we'd get, get them in. Anyway, one family had two boys. Their names were John and Ray. Their father was missing. Their mother was with a boyfriend. And he had several children. And so it was a blended, semi-non-marital family. One day, I pick up John and Ray, and we're driving down the road, and John, uh, or excuse me, Ray is in the front seat. I'm next to him, and I got kind of close to these fellows, and my kids are all in the car, and, and he's just staring out the window, you know. Not, I mean, he's this close to the window, you know, not talking to anybody. I said, Ray, you all right? He doesn't even look at me. He just keeps staring out and goes, I hate my dad. Well, that'll wake you up, let me tell you. And I go, Ray, are you okay? I hate my dad. Now, I don't know what his dad did, but it really hurt him. And it's probably one of a thousand hurts. I said to them, trying to move the conversation, I said, John, Ray, who, who would you call your dad? He goes, I don't have a dad. Well, I tell you, you recognize the value of the, t of the address when you realize people don't have that in their lives. And he was a bitter, aching man because his father was gone. His father was injurious to him. I didn't know what to do. I said to him, Ray, I'd be happy to be called your dad. 
hoping that would take some kind of pain out of his life. Oh, listen, when the Lord Jesus says, Our Father, he is giving you an identity above all identities. He is letting you address him as your Father. The only way you know how, how, how significant that is is when you meet people who don't have that significance. And all of the emotional aftermath, all of the emotional dominoes that fall over of that individual because their father is gone or is hateful or is, is, is just as ruthless as can be. Now all of a sudden, we have an identity that surpasses all other people. That's not the only thing. I want you to think about this allusion I made to, to Abba Father. It's, a, it's recorded in Romans 8, 14 through 17, and Galatians 4, 5 through 7. Don't turn there. But the term Abba Father is used. And if indeed he was speak, speaking in Aramaic, it would have been actually said Abba Father. Now, there are different uh, um, thoughts on, on what that expression is, but the predominant, um, perhaps, uh, um, lexicon, or the predominant flavor of this term would be a term of intimacy a term of closeness, a term of less formality and more of a, I, 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 I hate to say it this way, but sort of like a, a tender pet name. We have Victoria Grace Isabel, right? And I, I rarely call her all three names. In fact, the only time I called her all three names is when we signed the birth certificate. She's a lot closer to that. She's Gracie. She's Gracie to us. Now, my, um, I, I would like to think that the Lord, gave, the Lord gave me an illustration with this with my oldest daughter, Katie. Some of you may have met her. Katie was um, fixing to get married. Uh, not, this is Maggie's older sister. And, and, um, and, and Janet and her would have, uh, what do you call those, lunch planning dates. I later found out those were the times where they were planning on how much money to spend. It was, it was not a good thing. And so on one of these occasions, I actually went and attended one of their lunch planning dates. And I quickly realized that um, I was only there to listen. And uh, as they were talking, they were talking about uh, 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 what food to serve at the wedding. And, and I, I, I finally had the nerve enough to raise my hand. I said, can I ask a question? And they both were so kind to condescend to my level and say, yes, you may speak now. And I said... Uh, I, I think we should feed everybody, and, and I don't mean crackers and cheese. I mean, like, you know, steak and lobster. They looked at me like, oh, you sad little man. But they took my advice, and they changed the menu. I was very glad about that. But in the course of that conversation, when I raised my hand, I said, may I say something? Katie says, yes, sir. You see, we taught our children to say, yes, sir. And she's now 21, 22, and she's still using that term of, a reverence to me. And I said, no, wait a minute, Katie, wait a minute. You, you're, you're, what is it, was she 22 maybe, 21? I said, you're 21 years old. You are about to be married to another man and start a no, whole new life. I think that you've earned the right to call me daddy. It's close. And she goes, ah, oh, yes, sir, daddy. <laughs> you see, what did I want? I wanted my little girl to be able to address me with a tenderness and closeness that I felt with her. I wanted her to value that, to use that up. And I think 
And when he says, our Father, he's not only giving you an identity that every soul needs on the planet as a father, with a father figure. He's giving you a close, a very tender, sensitive father figure. But that's not all. Number three, notice the phrase, our Father. It's personal possessive. You ever remember that in grammar? It's a possessive pronoun. I go, possessive what? It sounds possessed to me. And, you know, and I had to slave through all of that grammar stuff. It's still a foreign language to me. But nonetheless, our. You know, there's a certain, a certain uniqueness to belonging to someone. Now, Gracie is, of course, the youngest one in our family. She's here, and she always gets the illustrations. But I like to think they're the best ones. And there was nothing more important to me that when Gracie would be distraught, she would ask for Daddy. We have nine children. All eight of them always ask for Mama. I wanted one that asked for Daddy. And, and as we were going along, I, I, I really wanted this. And so I tried to, to create those moments where we were just together. And I wanted her. And so at night, I would say to her, now, if you get scared tonight, come to my side of the bed. I never told my wife that. And, and she would. I wanted her to feel that she owned me in a good way. And I wanted I to feel like I owned her. Now, I don't mean that in some sick way. I mean in the kind of personal possession that you have with someone intimate. It's the same way with my wife and I. I am hers and she is mine. It's a bit of a quote out of Song of Solomon, is it not? We want voluntarily to have that exchange of possession one of another. That's what love is. And when he uses this inclusive term, our father, what he's saying is, I belong to you and you, my child, you belong to me. And I want it like that. You see, when we pray, just by our very initial salutation of the, of the prayer, we enter into some of the richness of what God is, his identity, what he gives to us, the intimacy, the closeness, the personal possession of it. God is saying to you, oh, child, when you pray, this is what happens as soon as you mention my name. And if you don't ever pray, you never understand much my heart is for you. See, prayer changes you. It makes you understand something about your father. But that's not all. There's a fourth point of meditation to this. First one is identity. Second one is intimacy. Third one is inclusion. The last one is what I call intuition. Obviously, I was going for all eyes there, and I had to use one, intuition. But it's a good one. Look over in Mark chapter 6, verse 8, right? So it's just a, uh, oh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 9. My apologies. Chapter 7, verse 9. And in this passage, we have a sort of um, uh, a, little, a, a little exercise the Lord is taking to create a contrast. And the contrast is between a human earthly father and a heavenly father. Now notice this. This is very interesting. Verse 9, chapter 7. 
Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Now that's a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is obvious. No, no father would do that. I'm one of those weirdo fathers. One day I was trying to use some sort of clever illustration about how things can be deceptive. And, and, and I, I, I had the kids sit down for breakfast and, and we normally had orange juice and I put grapefruit juice in the little orange juice bottle, which is extremely sour. And so I, I served them all their juice and I just waited for it and they all took a drink at once and you thought they were gonna throw up their liver. And they, they said, what? You know, and I laughed real hard. My wife looked at me like, don't ever do that to the children again. You know? I thought it was kind of funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. See, what sicko father would do that? None. And that's what he's saying here. No father in his right mind would ever give their child something like that. He expands the illustration to this. If, uh, or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? That's even crazier. You know? Hey, Dad, what are we having tonight? Salmon. Oh, great. Can I, can I see it? Yes, it's right here. And he opens the lid. That'd <laughs> freak him out. He'd never want fish or snake again. And he says, that's ludicrous. I, you don't have fathers on earth that do that. And let me tell you something. You don't have a father in heaven that does that either. If, if your earthly fathers who have a sinful spirit, who being evil, know how to give good gifts... Don't you think who I, who does, does not have that sinful nature, would definitely know how to give good gifts? Know what kind of gifts? And, and would give you bread when you ask for bread and fish when you ask for fish. That's who I am. I am intuitive as a father. I would do that for you. You know, sometimes I hear the phrase, and, and I'm, this is kind of challenging traditional thinking here, but I hear people say, well, God will only give you your needs, never your wants. Really? Really? Let me tell you something. I, I, you know, within reason, I like to give my children their wants. For example, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for your birthday? Well, I, 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 I would like this cool little uh, um, drone thing, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. But you don't need it, so I'm just going to give you a picture of one. Do we do that? No, if we being evil know how to get good gifts, how about our father? I don't think that. Now, it's clear that if we are praying in his name according to his will, he would do that. So obviously we're going to lay down, as you do to your earthly fathers, the decision of whether you will get that want or not for you, but you trust him to do that thing. That, that he might see the bigger picture and he might be able to say, well, that's what you think you want, but really it seems like your real want might be over here. You just, you just haven't called it correctly. And that's what we do as fathers, right? But I think we put God in a terrible sort of almost like a stingy box to say, well, God can't afford to give you your wants, so that's why you only got your needs. Do you ever say that? One time I was, I was moaning about some situation and talking about, oh, the, the expenses involved. The brother, he's Don, Dr. Don Street from um, 100 Mile House, British Columbia. I didn't even know there was a 100 Mile House. Probably is a 200 Mile House for all I know. And he said, he stopped me. He said, Steve, we all act like God's broke. You know, I don't think God's broke. 
You know, I'd put God in this box where I've dumbed him down and misrepresented really who he is. And that's what I think we want to understand. When we think of our Father in heaven, he's not some guy who's on welfare. He's not some person that has trouble balancing the books at the end of the day. He's not somebody that likes to play a game with your heart. Now you see it, now you don't. He's not somebody that has he, he, he is not somebody that has disregard for your wants, for your feelings, for your needs. He's got it all in his heart. Our Father has tremendous intuition. See, this is what Jesus was saying. When you pray, Jesus teaches to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Well, when you pray, pray in this manner, our Father. I just wonder if the rush of that meaning as they thought on those, thought on those words until the next time he preached the same message was rushing over their minds and, and watering their souls. You know, our Father. I can imagine the disciples walking down the road. What does that mean, John? Our Father. I can call God my father in the Old Testament. He was Jehovah. He was Adonai. But here he's my father. I can, I can see the two brothers. Uh, what is it? Andrew and Peter. Yeah, like, like our dad over there in Bethsaida. Yeah, just like that. That's amazing. I don't know. How does that mean? I think it means like dad had us do the fishing that our father wants us involved in. His. Can you see those sort of ripple conversations that would occur? Can you see how that would add color and meaning to the understanding of the passage? Oh, listen, I have to tell you, I think that we miss so much, so very much, because we don't pray as he instructed us to pray. How can we stay away from his presence? How can we not pray privately? How can we not pray collectively when he gives us this blank check on the very first words of his instruction? Saints. If that's all we learned today, that would be enough, wouldn't it? All right. Five minutes, okay. Now, most speakers, when they say five minutes, they'll close. I'm not one of them. <laughs> Sorry. Our Father who art in heaven. What is heaven? Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool, Isaiah 66, right? Throne. Yeah, that's a, what, 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 what exactly is a throne? And I don't mean the bathroom, okay? What do I mean? What, what does he say? Well, uh, obviously, it's his place of residing, right? It's his throne. It's where he sits. It's his chair. Yeah, you have those chairs at home, right? Oh, don't sit in that. That's dad's chair. I don't know. I look at all over. I don't see dad on it at all. But that's where dad sits, so we let him sit there, right? And usually it's one of those places that are close enough to the TV. You just have to use your thumb for the remote. That's why it's dad's chair. But this throne, it's his place. It's his, where are you going to find him, right? Heaven is your throne. But it's not just that. Heaven, according to Daniel 7, is a place of authority, right? It's a place that has jurisdictional rule. It is the seat of government which can... Reach, uh, stretch its arms out to all reaches of the universe. It has a place of authority, his throne. We respect the throne. We respect the office. This is the idea. But it's not just a concept, an intangible concept of authority. It has the power to back up its authority. 
right? So we say the government has authority, why, and, and we, we mention that, but we also know that the government has a whole group of law enforcement to back it up, right? They have power, they have strength. So therefore, we, ex we respect the authority of the law because there is power that would seek to enforce it if we tried to violate it. The law is a concept, it's a piece of thing we write on paper that we believe in, but you have this strength to make sure it, it's obeyed, that, that those who violate the law are caught and are appropriately uh, convicted and punished. So his throne is not only where you're going to find him, his throne is not only his authority, this intangible concept of his jurisdictional rule, but his throne is the very headquarters of all the power of God which would seek to deal with unrighteousness. And that's exactly what will be the motif of the millennial kingdom. It'll be very impressive. We, we, I can't imagine us understanding that until we see it then. But it's not just that. You know, gang, gang lords, they have thrones too. You know where you find them? They're, they're usually in a dark alley in a very dingy place and you go in and they're sitting on their throne. It looks like, you know, something you got out of the garbage can. It's not very majestic, is it? His throne is majestic. It looks the part. You walk into his throne room, angelic hosts are surrounding you. You walk into his throne room, it appears according to the model of the temple. It is overlaid with gold everywhere. It's such a brilliant picture. You've got music, you've got people saying things, which are the background noise, like elevator music. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You've got, you've got smoke surrounding the moment. You've got sounds and, 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 and lights, and, and it's... It's overwhelming with its austereness and beauty and majesty. That's the throne of God. And he says, Jesus is saying this, that's where you go. So for many years, I, I've had an office in my home. And in our house, we, uh, we put glass panes in the office doors for obvious reasons. But one of the byproducts of that is when the little ones, like Gracie, would come to the door I would, I would feel someone looking at me. Now, they hadn't come in yet, but their face was leaving an impression with their runny nose on the window pane of that French door, just looking at me. And I would lean up, and I'd look, and I'd see her there, and I said, well, what are you doing on the outside of that door? You should be on the inside of that door. And she'd break out of this big grin, push it open, and come, and she'd get, wouldn't even, it wouldn't even hesitate, wouldn't stop five feet away and ask to approach me. She would walk right up, sit on my very lap, and just be with me. That's it. She couldn't read. She couldn't, she couldn't understand what I was doing. She just sat there and put her head right on my chest, just like so. You know, I can't prove this, but sometimes I wonder when we pray, we are like little toddlers that when we go to heaven, we push the grand doors of heaven open. I can see them move in my mind's eye, and I look out, and there's all the saints of old and all the angelic hosts, and there's a bit of a stir in the courtroom of heaven, and all of a sudden, as soon as I open the door, the path is parted, and people and angelic hosts move, and I look down the corridor of the people, and I see this throne, and I see the Ancient of Days. 
And I begin to walk with my little teddy bear and my little, my little uh, sippy cup. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing everybody around me. And I hear the voice of my father. Shh! My child has come in. What are you doing over there? Why don't you come over here? And I watch as my father welcomes me to his throne. And in one arm movement, scoops me up, sits me on his knee. And I, like little children do, whisper. You never, you, you never do that? You say, now, what did you want to tell me? And instead of talking in a normal voice, they go. <laughs> and what do you do? You go, what was that? And you bend. One more time. And you bend yourself to their level. And you are looking to capture every syllable. And I can just see my father bend over with his ear in heaven. Obviously, I'm speaking metaphorically. Ah, yes. I see. This is how God, this is how the Lord Jesus opens his teaching on prayer. Who wouldn't want to pray? Who wouldn't want to talk to a father like that? I think we need to be a praying people. Let's pray. Father, I'm almost ashamed to use this title because I've trampled it so. So many times I've, I've approached you, bursting into your presence, yelling, screaming, bellowing. But your son, your son taught us that you are such a loving father. You care about that child and you will silence, as it were, the workings of the universe to listen to a whisper of someone who knows your name. Thank you, Father. What a rare privilege this is. No other people group on this planet who understands this or owns this like we do, and we act like we don't even own it. We act like we don't know it. Oh, Father, we confess to you, and in your faithfulness and righteousness, would you cleanse us of this sin and cleanse us of our malnourished understanding and cleanse us from our anemia of spiritual exercise and give us a new heart that longs to pray, commune with you, Jesus' name I ask.